Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. I may have mentioned to you before, but my first day of seminary was orientation, and the dean of the school of theology got up on the stage, and he had some brand new, pretty fancy Bibles that he wanted to give away, and he said, I'm going to give these to the first couple of people who can list all of the books of the Bible in order. Uh, any volunteers, people raised their hand, he called them up, and uh, he laid down some ground rules. First, you couldn't sing a song. So if you'd learned the books through a song, you couldn't sing it. Uh, Second, if you took a long pause trying to think of the next book, you were out. You had to do it pretty quickly. So the first person started. She rattled off Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, on and on and on. Got to the middle, started to slow down a little bit. And then she started putting some big pauses in. He buzzed her out. She was done. The next person, same thing, started quick. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Started to slow down towards the middle. Got to about that same section, and he buzzed her. Uh, he, he was out. And, uh, and the third person, fourth. But long story short, the dean of the School of Theology did not give away very many Bibles that day. Because hardly anybody could do it. And everybody got mixed up at the same section. Because the Bible is broken down into chunks. There's the law. That's the first few books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then there are some historical books that tell the story of Israel. Then there's the wisdom literature. That's Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then we skip ahead to the Gospels. Stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, then Acts, the story of the church. Then there's the letters of the New Testament. Finally, Revelation at the end about things that are still yet to come. But there's a section in the middle that we always skip over, and that's the prophets. There's some major prophets. There's some minor prophets. And like those seminary students, it's the part of the Bible that we are the least familiar with. Even when you do read it, It is the section you're most likely to read, close your Bible, and say, I have no idea what I just read. (laughs) But there's richness in there for us because God inspired these scriptures and he has preserved them for us throughout time. So if he's preserved them, then it means there's something good for us to eat there. And we're going to spend the next 12 weeks trying to understand that part of the Bible by specifically focusing on Isaiah. And you see in your listening guide, Isaiah is 66 chapters of warnings against Israel's sin and opportunities for a bright future. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters of warnings against Israel's sin and opportunities for a bright future with God. It's both. It's warning, but it's also blessing. And it's all mixed up in there together. Because what has happened in the book of Isaiah is God's people, Israel, uh, they are stuck in a repetitive loop. They are in a covenant relationship with God, just like a marriage. Uh, God was faithful to keep his vows, but Israel had not been faithful to keep their vows. So God would send the prophets to them to woo them back into right relationship. And yet they rejected him over and over and over again. We see a perfect summary of that repetitive loop in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. On Friday, I went to Walmart to run to get some groceries. I know that there's no street cred in Walmart because it's not a mom and pop organic vegan place, but, uh, <laughs> but I like going to Walmart for two primary reasons. Number one, it's usually always cheaper. Number two, uh, they have a McDonald's in the lobby, and I like to get a large drink and have my large drink while I shop around for things. So Friday I went, started to get my drink at McDonald's, only this time I wasn't alone. I had Willa, our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, with us, and so I got a drink for me, and I got something for her. And as soon as uh, the lady behind the counter handed me the cup, I thought to myself, we're going to spill this. Between me and her, we're going to spill this. Uh, but I'd already bought it, and it seemed like bad stewardship to let it go to waste. So I got my huge drink, thought I'd take my chances. And um, sure enough, about aisle five, all over the ground. And then I did what you would do in that situation. I looked ahead of me. There was nobody. I looked behind me. There was nobody. And I thought about making a dash for it. But I'm a pastor, and we're held to unreasonable standards. So I went up to the front, found the first person that I saw that was an employee there, and I said, there's a spill on the cereal aisle. <laughs> I didn't think it was relevant. It didn't matter whether it was my spill or somebody else's, but I knew that was what was going to happen. Uh, a little alarm went off in me when we bought the drink, uh, but I didn't listen to it. I didn't heed it. And that really right there is the summary of the book of Isaiah, unheeded warnings. God warned them through Isaiah, and as the scripture says, they scoffed at him, and they rejected God's message. And that's not just an Israel problem. God will send us warnings, and we have a choice. We can listen to them, heed them, obey them, or we can just take our chances. So there are a few things that I would want us to walk away with today as we introduce the book of Isaiah The first one you see in your listening guide, God warns us in relationship. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. If you have a copy of the scripture in your hands, you see that when it says the Lord, it's not just a title, it's all capitals. It it doesn't look that way on the screen, but... In your Bible, it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And anytime you see that in your Bible, that's a stand-in for God's personal name, Yahweh, as he revealed it to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So God isn't just known by his titles, but he has a personal name because he had a personal relationship with Israel. Then it says, the Lord, the God of their father. So it's hearkening back to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God has always had a personal relationship with Israel. It started when God chose Abraham out of obscurity to say, I'm going to start a people with this man, and then with his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. And through their descendants, I'm going to demonstrate to the whole world what I am like. And as you read the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis, what you'll see is God is exceedingly patient to those patriarchs. He gives an unreasonable amount of grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's important for us to remember that when God comes to warn us, he warns us with patience. 
because he's personally connected to us and we're personally connected to him. So we need to be careful that we don't close ourselves off to God, that we don't harden our heart towards God because it's in that personal relationship that he'll send his warnings. When you think about when you drive your car, you either drive, you coast, or you reverse. Those are your options. The scripture tells us that we should seek God, and when we seek God, we will find God. There should be a seeking him as we read the scriptures. There should be a looking for him as we pray. There should be an experience of God as we gather together as his community of people. There should be a driving, but often it's easier to coast. It's easier to, easier to say, well, if I wake up and I feel like reading my Bible, I might. If, if I just feel absolutely necessary to pray, then I'll be praying. Um, but if not, then I'm not. There's, there's a coasting. Or there's a reversing. This is where God wants me to go, but I don't want to go there, and so I'm going to move in the opposite direction. Which one best describes your relationship with God at this present moment? Are you seeking? Are you driving? Are you coasting? Whatever happens, happens. Whatever I feel, I feel. Or are you reversing? Because if we're not driving, if we're not seeking, it may be that God is sending us warnings. But because we've closed ourselves off from him in that personal relationship, those warnings may be going missed. God warns us in relationship. Number two, God warns us with compassion. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. A few years ago, we took our kids to Yellowstone National Park, and I didn't know this, but there are actually two Grand Canyons in America. There's the main Grand Canyon, and there's the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And in the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, there are two giant waterfalls, the Upper Falls and the Lower Falls, and you can actually drive and see them. You have two options. You can just look at it from your car, or you can get out and hike down to the very edge of the falls. Now, I don't like to exercise on vacation. That's normally my speed. But I really wanted to see this waterfall because it's not a little trickle. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but if you can imagine Niagara Falls jammed a little bit closer together, that's the force uh, that this water rolls off of this cliff there in the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And I I wanted to see that. I wanted to get as close to that as possible. So our kids were little at the time. So Jackson was four, so I strapped him up on my shoulders and Amanda put Annabeth, who was one at the time, on her chest and we hiked down to what seemed like forever. It was probably 10 minutes, but I was not exercising that much at the time. So forever down. And you get to the edge of the falls and it's right there. And, And you can feel, not just hear, not just see, you can feel the power of these falls. Now, thankfully, there was a fence in between the viewing area and the water because if you put one toe into that water, it was sweeping you over and you were dead. There was no chance that you would live. That's the kind of uh, ferocity these falls, uh, these falls have. And there were signs all over the fence. Essentially, don't climb the fence. If you get in this water, you're going to die. You have a couple of ways of looking at those signs. You can say, well, this is just the government being the government and trying to restrict me. (laughs) I'm a libertarian. I don't want the government in my business. If I want to climb this fence, I'll climb this fence. You could look at it like that, or you could look at it like, you know what? Actually, they're saving my life. 
Actually, they're looking out for me. They're not trying to thwart me. They're trying to warn me. And we have those same two options when it comes to God's warnings, God's rules, God's scriptures. No, these are just arbitrary. This is just God trying to stamp out my sense of personal responsibility, personal choice, personal freedom. Just trying to restrict me. He's trying to fence me in, trying to get me to go where he wants me to go. Or we can look at it like, no, God is warning us to save us. A couple of weeks ago, we were having a discussion with our bigger kids, Jackson and Annabeth, about which parent says no the most. (laughs) And they didn't even hesitate. They said, oh, dad says no the most. And I took it super personal because I'm trying to be the cool parent, you know. (laughs) And so this was a few weeks ago, and I've really watched myself to make sure how often I say no to them and, more importantly, why I say no. Am I saying no for their good or just because I don't want to be bothered? Am I saying no because it's, it's healthy for them and this is a better decision for them? Or am I saying no because we made up a rule that doesn't make any sense and now we just need to enforce it? And I think a lot of us assume that God is saying no to us just because he doesn't want to deal with us. He sets a place of rules, a plan for rules, and then that is just what is executing the world. This all abiding by his rules, like some software thing. But when God says no to us, he says no in a personal relationship. He says no out of compassion. He sends us warnings because he loves us and cares for us and knows what's best for us. God warns us with compassion. Next, God warns us with his messengers. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now notice it mentions that he had compassion on his dwelling place. That was his temple in Jerusalem. Now the New Testament tells us that we become the temple of God when we become followers of Jesus because God's spirit comes to live inside of us. And then corporately together as a church, we become the house of God. So God warns you, Not just because he has compassion on you, but because he has compassion on the rest of us because we're all connected. When you mourn, we all mourn. When you hurt, we all hurt. When you win, we all win. That's why it's important to be a part of a church because you need to be connected in that way because we can all celebrate things. We can all grieve together. You don't have to do that alone. The same is true when you sin, we all sin. When you're righteous, we're all righteous. We're all connected So God will come and warn us personally because he has compassion on all of us corporately. And he does that through his messengers. Now, being a messenger of God, being a prophet of God, meant that you were going to have to do some extraordinary things. Like, for example, the prophet Ezekiel uh, had to eat a scroll. Like, not metaphorically. Like, so imagine eating your Bible. Maybe that's why you didn't bring it today, because you ate it. That was my passive-aggressive way of saying, please bring your Bibles to church. (laughs) He ate a scroll. Uh, He also had to cook a meal over excrement as a message to God's people. You don't want to be a prophet. Isaiah, our Isaiah, he had to preach 
for a long period of time, stripped. Now, probably it didn't mean totally naked, but it also didn't mean totally clothed today. I mean, some of you give me a hard time about wearing jeans and tennis shoes. Imagine, I mean, it could be Isaiah, you know? <laughs> the prophet Hosea had to marry a promiscuous woman, a woman he know, knew would cheat on him. Because that was a message to God's people. This is how you're treating God. God is being faithful and you are not being faithful. The prophet Samuel came back from the dead to deliver a message for a moment. And then Jeremiah couldn't wash his underwear for a long period of time. You don't want to be a prophet. There was a long list of prophets. They didn't always do unusual things like this. But they were definitely unusual people. They were not normal people. This is how God spoke to Israel. How does God speak to us today? A couple of ways that we know from the New Testament. We know that God has spoken through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that God used to speak through his prophets in many times and in many ways, but now he has spoken to us through his son. If you want to know what God wants to say to you, if you're confused about what God is communicating to you, you can always go back to Jesus. Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return. That is what God wants to say to you. He's spoken through his son. God also speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave us the Spirit of God as a gift when he ascended. He wasn't leaving us alone, but he's given us his very spirit. And John chapter 14 says the Spirit of God inside of us will lead us into all truth and will remind us of the words of Jesus. So if you want to know the truth and you discover the truth, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Number three, God speaks in the Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It comes with God's power. It comes with God's will. It comes with God's heart. Scripture can change your life. And finally, God speaks through the church. Again, that's why you want to be connected to a church. Not because it's a rule. Not because God is fencing you in. But one way God will speak to you is through his people. We see this in the New Testament because the New Testament talks about prophets and prophecy. It's a little bit different than the Old Testament prophets. When the Old Testament prophets would speak, it was as if God himself were speaking those words. And they would say, thus saith the Lord. But New Testament prophecy is a little bit different. It is a spirit-inspired message delivered to a person or group for the purpose of education and encouragement this message is to be tested by the receiver. So you're, maybe you're praying for somebody, and as you're praying for them, it's like lightning hits you on the inside, and you know that you have a message for them. And that message will be for the purpose of building them up and encouraging them. And when you deliver that message to them, and you say to them, hey, I was praying for you, and I don't know, I just feel like maybe God was saying this to me, and I'm still supposed to say this to you. When you say it, it's going to increase their faith. It's going to give them confidence in who God made them to be and what God is asking them to do. It's going to edify them, build them up, and encourage them. It's not, thus saith the Lord. You don't write down what God said and then stick it in the inside of your Bible because their job is then to test that message to make sure that the Holy Spirit living inside of them is confirming that message that you gave them and then also they're going to test it according to the scripture. So if somebody ever came to you and said, I was praying for you and it, uh, God said to me that you don't need to believe in Jesus anymore, you would go back to the scripture and say, no, that's not accurate. Or if somebody came and said, uh, I was praying for you, and 
Turns out you can live with your girlfriend. You would go back to the scripture and go, no, that's not right. You test it. And once you've tested it, if it is a message from God, it will build you up and it will encourage you in your faith. This New Testament prophecy that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us we should desire all the spiritual gifts. We should desire to be teachers. We should desire to be leaders. We should desire to have the gifts of hospitality and uh, comfort. But especially, Paul says, this gift of prophecy. You should especially want to experience praying for someone else, being given a message, and then being able to deliver that message to somebody so that you can be built up and encouraged in their faith. This is one of the ways that God speaks inside of the church. Next, God follows through on his warnings. Verse 16, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. God followed through. In the next section of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, it says how God followed through. The Babylonians came and they destroyed Israel. They killed a lot of people. They stole from the temple. They stole from the palaces. Then they took a large number of young people from Jerusalem back to Babylon. That's where we get the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God followed through on his warnings. So you and I need to be careful that we don't mistake God's patience for his permission. You may not yet be experiencing the consequences of ignoring God, but that doesn't mean that God won't eventually follow through on those warnings. He's just being patient with you. See, sometimes we put God in a position where we say, God, if you don't want me to do this, then I need you to stop it. That's exactly what my two-year-old daughter Willa does. She starts to reach for something, and we say no. And then she looks us in the eye and reaches for it even slower. (laughs) I know a lot of adults who do that with God. God, if you don't want me to take this job, that would actually steal from my family because of how much I'm going to be gone. Then don't let me get called back for a second interview. If you don't want me to pursue this relationship that is unbiblical, then don't let them return my text message. If you don't want me to do this, I need you to stop me from doing it. That's immature faith. God will follow through on his warnings. So don't mistake his patience with permission. He's just giving you an opportunity to heed that warning. And finally, God is able to restore as strongly as he warns. And this is good news because we're all going to mess up. It says in verse 22, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. See, the Israelites were taken as captives to Babylon. Babylon was eventually conquered by Persia. God stirred up the king of Persia to let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And that's the story of Isaiah. Warning, 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 not listened to. The Babylonians come because God follows through on his warnings. They spend a long time in exile in Babylon, but eventually God brings them back to Jerusalem. He restores them. Now, he does not restore them consequence-free. There are always consequences for our bad decisions. Whenever we reject the warnings of God, you can't unwind the consequences. When Israel went back, they did rebuild the temple, but it was a shadow of the temple they had before. When they went back, Jerusalem was rebuilt, but it wasn't the same. They did go back, but they never had another king of David sitting on the throne. Even today, if you know one thing about Israel, you know that they fight with their neighbors over whose land it is. You know where that comes from? That comes from right here. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because they didn't listen to the prophets. They are still fighting. So there are always consequences. But it doesn't stop redemption. It doesn't stop restoration. You know, when most of us forgive... Uh, we forgive people and then we just punish them forever. And that's how we forgive. You've wounded me. Now I'm going to freeze you out for the rest of my life. You've hurt me. So um, I'm just going to be mad at you forever. I've forgiven you. Not really, but forgiven you. But when God forgives, he restores all the way. He doesn't treat us as people who have wounded him. He welcomes us back. He redeems us. We see this in the followers of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, probably Jesus' most committed disciple. She was the first eyewitness of the empty tomb. Her story started because she was demon-possessed, and Jesus restored her life. Matthew, author of one of the Gospels, a member of the 12 disciples. His story started because he was a tax collector. He robbed from people systematically taking advantage of normal people to line his own pockets. And Jesus restored him, redeemed him after he had forgiven him and welcomed him. God doesn't forgive and rebuild like we do. He restores as strongly as he warns. There's going to be a lot that we'll learn from Isaiah. There's no doubt about it. But I think the first and maybe the most important lesson comes from Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. If Israel had obeyed this psalm, Isaiah would be one chapter long and not 66 chapters. If the first warning had come and they said, God, we want to do your will, it's over. So when God comes to warn us, we're not going to fight. We're not going to drag our heels. We're just going to say, it would be my honor to do your will, God. Let's pray. Why don't you ask God right now, God, have you been trying to warn me? 
God, we want to do your will. In Jesus' name.